0: Everybody loves a hero
1: people line up for them, cheer them scream their names and years later They'll tell how they stood in the rain for hours
0: Just to get a glimpse of the one who taught him to hold on a second longer. I Believe there's a hero in all of us That keeps us honest gives us strength makes us noble and finally allows us to die with pride even though sometimes we have to be steady and and give up the thing we want the most even our dreams <laughs> Franchise Detours, episode 20. Rob here. You can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. This episode, we are continuing our swing through the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, talking about probably the most beloved, at least, uh, yeah, I'd say most beloved entry in this trilogy, Spider-Man 2 from 2004. Uh, On this episode, I'm joined by Josh Bell of Awesome Movie Year. And we had a really interesting conversation about what this film is, what it means for this trilogy, why it's so popular, whether it's the best of this trilogy or or the best Spider-Man movie in general. And I think it's an interesting bridge between the first film and the third film and what those two mean, not only for the character, but for the culture. But without further ado, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation on Spider-Man 2. What you been Looking for you all morning? You're late. Always late. You're fired. Look at your paper. Your grades have been declining. You always appear exhausted.
1: I know I'm trying.
0: So where you been, pal? You don't return my calls. Uh, I've been kind of busy. Taking pictures of your friend. Spider-Man killed my father.
1: No matter what i do do you love me or not
0: no matter how hard i try i want spider-man dead it's the ones i love who will always be the ones who pay i can't keep thinking about you i'm getting married i want a life of my own i'm spider-man no more Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're swinging through the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy with 2004's Spider-Man 2. And I'm honored to welcome to the show, Josh Bell. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So tell people who didn't hear, we were just talking right before we started this conversation. That the last time we spoke on on Mike, I think was Terminator 2 Judgment Day, pre pre-COVID on what it, the, what is now Close Watch, what used to be the Crooked Table podcast. So how the hell how the how the hell are you? And tell people about awesome movie year.
1: Well, I'm I'm hanging in there. It's been a long time since that yes. conversation, but very different uh, world we live in. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. But uh, yeah, awesome movie year is still going strong. That is a podcast that I co-host with comedian Jason Harris and uh, produced by David Rosen, who I believe has been on this podcast and is the host of the Piecing It Together podcast as well. So Jason and I on Awesome Movie Year, each season, we take a look back at a different year in cinema. And each episode is kind of a different category where we talk about one particular movie. So we talk about the Best Picture winner, the number one movie at the box office, some of our personal picks. Film Festival winner, usually 12 to 14 or so movies per year that we pick. So we've been talking about 1980 in our most recent season, and we kind of jump around in cinema history. So it's a, it's a fun way for us to look back at various snapshots from throughout all of cinema history. And uh, that is our 11th season that we're doing now. So we've been doing it for a while. And uh, check us out at awesomemovieyear.com. We're at uh, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, although there is literally nothing on that Instagram. Um, and at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. So, yeah, we do uh, audience choice polls for each of our seasons for kind of our finale episodes. So you can help us pick what we might talk about and uh, we'd love to have you listen.
0: Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. And you guys did do 2007. So people already have your. Thoughts on Spider-Man 3 out uh, into the, in the world and, and ready for your for your listening pleasure.
1: That is correct. Yeah, we we did a whole season on 2007 and that was our box office champion episode for that year. So mixed feelings from uh from us on Spider-Man 3 but you can <laughs> check that out in our archives. All those episodes are at AwesomeMovieYear.com.
0: Yeah, people will hear, as of this recording, the Spider-Man 3 episode's already in the in the bank for, for the next episode after this one to be released. But yeah, lots of lots of thoughts, lots of mixed feelings. I, I feel <laughs> like it's clearly, I mean, I haven't edited these yet, obviously, but it's clearly going to be the longest of the three conversations because there's so much to get into. Like, love it or hate it, that movie is, there's a lot going on. Too much going on, some would say.
1: Yes, I, I I would say that. But I'm sure whoever you talk to has plenty more to say about it. And that's not our topic this time.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. So obviously, you know, Spider-Man has been around since forever. What is your personal history with the character? And then, you know, what are your overall thoughts on Raimi's trilogy?
1: Well, in terms of the character, I mean, I, I like Spider-Man, but I've never been a huge Spider-Man fan, I guess. I grew up reading comic books as a kid, and Spider-Man was never really one of my main interests in that world, but I remember for some reason, I used to go to the comic book store, but back in the day here, I'll show you my age, you used to be able to subscribe to comic books in the mail like they were magazines, and for some reason, maybe there was a school magazine sale or something like that, I remember my, my mom bought me a subscription to The Amazing Spider-Man in the mail because she knew I liked comics. So I ended up reading a bunch of Spider-Man in the 90s around that time, just by default, because it was literally mailed to my house. But I never got super into Spider-Man. And if you read comics, you might know that in the 90s, the Spider-Man comic books proliferated to a ridiculous degree and there were numerous Spider-Man titles. And there may be that now too. I really haven't paid a lot of attention to Spider-Man comics, but there was so much of it that I would read The Amazing Spider-Man and it would show up in my mailbox every month and it would be like part eight of this crossover. And then next month would be part 12 of the crossover. And I missed all the in-between segments because I didn't care, Um, but but Spider-Man is fun. I mean, how can you not like him? He's got an amazing design. He's got cool powers. He's quippy and clever. And I mean, there's a reason that the creation of Spider-Man basically saved Marvel comics in the 1960s. So yeah, Spider-Man is a lot of fun. I probably watched Spider-Man and his amazing friends the animated show also when I was an even littler kid with Firestar and Iceman on it, which was the weirdest combination of superheroes. (laughs) But I wasn't someone, I was in this era of comic book movies before the MCU when it was still a novelty that there would be a movie based on a comic book. I was far more excited for the X-Men movies because I was a huge, huge, huge X-Men fan from the comics than I was for the Spider-Man movies. But these are great, or at least the first two are great. And Spider-Man 2 is, if not the greatest superhero movie ever made, in the top, like, three, I think. So to me, even if I'm sort of neutral on Spider-Man, the way that he's depicted in this movie, the way that Raimi captures everything that is great about superheroes, about comic books, about Spider-Man, this is just a, a, a brilliant film.
0: I'm glad we're getting that out of the way <laughs> because that was one of my notes towards the bottom was like, is this the best Spider-Man movie? Is this the best, one of the best comic movies ever? So I'm glad we're, we're in agreement on that. We can just kind of put that out there up front. that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree with, with pretty much everything you said. I think for me in the nineties, like I knew Spider-Man mostly, the weird thing is I'm a big fan of superhero stories through the, through the films, obviously through like the animated series through video games and toys and things like that, I never really read a lot of comics as a kid. That's that's the thing. I knew Spider Man mostly from the the animated series in the '90s. Same with same with X Men, honestly. So those were my pre film, my pre cinematic versions of those characters. And I, yeah, there's so much because I, I remember what an event it was when that first film came out in 2002. People at this point will have already heard me talk about that and how I think people, I think. You know, audiences today might not even realize what what a huge thing that was coming after post nine eleven and being this superhero story set in New York. Very that's very much in the DNA of this character. So when this came out, it this was you know as you said the you know Spider Man three was the box office champ of two thousand seven. This was if not the top, very close to the top for two thousand four because it, it felt like such a a seismic event when this film was released and. It got the kind of critical acclaim that most blockbusters certainly in this era definitely didn't receive. I mean, now we're living in a world where every MCU movie is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, whatever that means. And when this came out, I think critics were stunned because they were like, they realized, oh, this isn't just a great kind of adventure action film. Like there is a human story here. It gets really personal. And I think it's, I think that's, Part of why it stands out so much in this trilogy is that it feels it's like it's a $200 million movie that feels extremely intimate, Uh, a very, very personal story about Peter Parker.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that it, it feels distinctive in a way. And I don't know if this is sort of related to one of the other specific topics that we'll get to, but it feels distinctive in a way that these movies are really not allowed to be anymore that I hope Sam Raimi does a great job with the upcoming Doctor Strange movie. And I don't know if it will be out already when this episode comes out, but it's not now. But I am very skeptical of how much Marvel in its current form would allow someone like Sam Raimi or anyone to put their own distinctive stamp on something like this, because it's such an integral part of this larger corporate building project. And that wasn't the case here. Like, yes, this is a two million, $200 million movie. And sure, it was a big, big deal for Sony and for Marvel. And there's a lot riding on it. But this movie is so Sam Raimi. It is clearly his yeah. film- where he has the freedom to make his kind of movie, and if he's setting stuff up, he's only setting that stuff up for himself to make more of his movies. So, I love that about this movie, and I think that gets forgotten in these, especially in the MCU. DC, maybe not quite as much, or they they kind of ping back and forth, but especially in the MCU, it's so tightly controlled, and the auteur of those films is never the director, it's always <laughs> the producer, it's always the studio, and you lose that. And this is a movie that is its own thing. It is a Sam Raimi film. It is just a movie about Spider-Man doing this Spider-Man things in this movie. And we just, we don't get that anymore. And it's kind of a bummer.
0: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It's, you see all the time now on, on film Twitter, especially people romanticizing the early two thousands. Like, do you remember the Matrix sequels, the Spider-Man sequels, the Pirate sequels. Yeah, those have issues, but look at the crazy shit they were pulling off with the insane amounts of money. And these movies, you know, did well. Maybe they weren't received as, as, you know, as warmly by fans at the time, but over the years since then, people are like, the The latter to the the second and third Pirates film, for example. People now are like, what a perfect trilogy. And I'm like, I wasn't, nobody was saying that in 2006 when that came out, but okay. God, I just, uh, to, I'll just, let me just interject. And I don't know if you're talking, those movies are garbage. Those second and third Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean movies are straight up garbage. I, Sorry, continue. No, I think part of it, I, I, I like those movies, all right. But I mean, I'm not going to like, it's not the hill I'm going to die on. I think part of it is also... Because of what you're saying, because they took big, they did wild things. They tried crazy ideas. The The Matrix Reloaded, for example, which we I've covered on, on podcasts before. It's it basically the whole point of that second movie is, oh, that first movie, that's all bullshit. Stick around for the third one to see what happens. It, it completely upends the story from the first one, which is a ballsy move. Whether people liked it or not, it's a ballsy move. This movie, spending $200 million and having these crazy fun action sequences, but also letting Sam Raimi do a horror sequence in the middle of the movie with Doc Ock or having like multiple scenes where it's two people in a room having a conversation about their feelings. Like that doesn't happen anymore. The things that these movies did, it's it, it, you know, Iron Man set the tone for what the MCU would be as far as the template of the storytelling, the formula kind of got crystallized. And now no one wants to diverge from that formula which is why part of the reason that as flawed as the DCEU is occasionally they take a crazy risk and they have James Wan direct an Aquaman movie with a you know an octopus playing drums under <laughs> there and like all these you know what i mean like there's weird imagery and crazy ideas that they're able to let directors be themselves and i agree with you this feels the one of the big takeaways of this movie not only one is the story so personal to Peter Parker, but it it feels like Sam Raimi finally got the gloves taken off. And he's like, okay, you know who Spider-Man is. We introduced the world. Now I'm gonna make a Sam Raimi movie set within that world. And I think you feel that from the very beginning of this film.
1: Yeah, you do. And the first movie is, I mean, that's not to discount the quality of that movie. And mm-hmm. I'm again, I know you've talked about it. And it's really entertaining. It's a really good introduction to Spider-Man. And it it too is a Sam Raimi movie, maybe not quite to the degree that this one is, but I think he still is able to put his stamp on even that first movie in a way that directors just aren't able to with these kinds of movies anymore. And and part of that too, is that when he made that movie, there were no other Spider-Man movies. There wasn't anything that he's gonna have to sort of respond to or be in conversation with, or change up in some way. And, you know, sure, there's Spider-Man animated series as we talked about, and there was a brief live action series in, I was at the 70s, I think, with Nicholas Hammond. But, you know, there's just so little. People aren't used to seeing, they're not used to seeing Spider-Man on screen constantly, and they're not used to seeing superheroes on screen constantly. And so there's an ability to be fresh, with this content, with this, where, with this subject matter that just doesn't exist anymore. Even if you're doing a film with a superhero that that specific character hasn't been in a movie before the whole concept of superheroes and the way that they're presented has become so familiar to everyone that you, you can't, it, it, it takes a lot to make it seem fresh and you're not allowed to do that anyway. So, so, I mean, I think it's great, but I think Raimi was also lucky, and that's why I have much lower expectations for his Doctor Strange movie because he's coming back into this world in a very, very, very different landscape than he entered it in the first time.
0: Yeah, that's the big question. I think is how how much is Kevin Feige going to let Sam Raimi do his own thing? I, I think you know I, the reports that it was going to be two and a half hours. I think it would have been much more the sort of call back a palooza that no way home is but the fact that it sounds like it's going to be pared down to like just over two hours almost the exact runtime of this film makes me feel a little more a little better that maybe they're letting him kind of pare down the story and not let it be feel so overwhelming but again we're we're not here to talk dr strange we'll (laughs) we'll have to wait and see i but i yeah i you see it in this film i think the biggest way it feels like a Sam Raimi movie is not only in the stylistic choices, we are, like we said, the Evil Dead thing, which we'll get to later, but it feels like it leans into sort of the campiness of this character a little more than the first one. You get uh, Spider-Man, like, I think there's that one scene where a ca- the car is flying through the air and it, it catches it in a web like halfway through and it pauses on the crowd and that, that one woman is like, it's a web. And then Spider-Man spins over, swings overhead. It's just like, go, Spidey, go. Like that kind of like cheesiness, that cornball aspect of Spider-Man that Sam Raimi leans so hard into. And yet it doesn't feel cheesy. It it fits this character. He's able to marry that kind of comic book aesthetic with this, this story about what is essentially an ongoing threat of the relationships between Peter, MJ, and Harry and how that dynamic changes over the course of this trilogy. I, I really, I really love how he's able to sort of put his kind of, his, his sense of humor in this film. And I think you you get that from the early sequence with with the pizza, even. Like, you, I can't tell you how many times in the last 20 years I've said, he stole that guy's pizza. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I love the way Donald Rawlings delivers that line. And I think it's such a, it's such a like, uh, it's a, such a fun laugh moment where he's, where, where, <laughs> where he disappears down the alley and then comes back as Spider-Man with the pizza. Like, I love that. What are, your, what are your thoughts on the way that this movie sort of, I feel like doubles down on the humor uh, that is Spider-Man?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of humor here. There's a lot of comic book aesthetics here in a way that works. For example, in contrast to like Ang Lee's Hulk film, where you get the impression that Ang Lee had never read a comic book and then read a few of them and decided to copy what he thought was, in, was the way a comic book worked. <laughs> But yeah, obviously that's not the subject here either. But but I think it, there's a lot of comic book aesthetics. There's a lot of very, very specific callbacks. I mean, there's the Spider-Man no more thing with the costume in the, yeah. in the trash can, which is literally a recreation of a comic book cover. One of the most famous I, iconic comic book covers ever. But I think what there isn't here is something that we do get a lot in the MCU, which I can find entertaining, but also exhausting after a while, which is ironic distance that there's humor here, there's funny stuff, there's quips, but it's character driven and you never get the sense that Raimi is trying to deflect with humor because he doesn't respect the material or he's worried that the audience won't respect the material or that he wants to show, hey, I'm cool too. I know this is silly. He loves it. He loves it so much. And, and I mean, I think that comes across in, in a lot of Sam Raimi stuff. I mean, you look at his horror movies and clearly he loves cheesy horror. He loves monster movies. He loves all of that stuff that is somewhat disreputable and goes right along with comic books and especially comic books of this earlier era that he's evoking here, the, the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby stuff of, of early Spider-Man. So I, I agree with you 100%. There's humor here. It's very fun and lively, and it doesn't take itself too seriously, but that also does, that doesn't that does mean that it doesn't take itself the right amount of seriously. Like, you get the real emotions of the relationship between Peter and MJ and the relationship between Peter and Harry. And Doc Ock, too. I mean, Alfred Molina is so good in this movie. Yeah. And yeah, the, the absurdity of this character, and he never breaks it. He makes you feel for this guy with the friggin robot arms, you know, as this tragic figure, and it's real and it's it's real to Melina and it's real to Raimi. and thus it's real to us as we watch it, but it's also super fun. so I mean, I just think that that's a balancing act that very, very few other filmmakers have managed to to successfully pull off in any superhero movie either before or since the m c u there's
0: a there's a level of personal struggle or or, or tragedy inherent in, in all of these characters. You know, I think that that's, that's the basis. That's the emotional basis for why we connect to, to Peter and MJ and Harry. And in this one, Otto and Aunt May even, you know, all of these characters are trying to prove themselves. They're trying to prove they're good enough to live up to, you know, the mantle of Spider-Man or they're they're in the case of MJ, they're they broken home that they were ra- raised in. And Doc Ock is trying to prove that his career, his wife, who gets unfortunately gets fridged in this movie, that she, even that she didn't die for nothing. That, you know, I was even realizing here that there's really kind of shades of dark man's story. I don't know if you've seen Sam Raimi's Darkman in Doc Ock's and that he is left with the aftermath of a science experiment that goes wrong. And he's trying to trying to make the best of it, trying to solve the the equation, so to speak. Holds up in an abandoned warehouse, like it's a lot of that sort of motivation driving him. So I think that was Raimi's, Raimi's entry point for for that character, at least. And it, and it's part of why I think this movie is Harold is as, as the the best, at least the best live action Spider Man movie. You know, you were into the Spider Verse. That's a whole other conversation. Is that it, this film represents. Peter Parker at his lowest. I feel like we define Peter Parker through his misery, through his despair, through his struggling. And this movie loves, it's basically two hours of the world beating the crap out of Peter Parker. And then at the end, Andrew being like, here, I'll, I'll give you a break. <laughs> Pretty much. It's kind of how this narrative works.
1: Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, I think it's not miserable. It's no, not, not piling all. things on. And I think that's maybe one of the problems with Spider-Man three is that it tries too hard to be dark. And Mm. this movie is not that like bad things happen to Peter and he struggles, but we identify with him and we know he's a good person and he's always going to be a good person. Even when he maybe makes certain bad decisions, we know he'll come back to doing the right thing. So I never feel like this movie is a slog in any way where you're like, oh, come on, just give give these characters a break, right? Stop beating them up because there's still so much lightness and optimism to the storytelling as a whole. So where I think Spider-Man 3 doesn't quite get that right i will say i have seen dark man but not in a really really long time but that all makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying about about octavius and how he's represented i was looking through the review that i wrote uh for las vegas weekly in 2004 when this movie came out and i referenced the way that octavius smokes his cigar is like mm. the villain in dark man and, yeah. and i vaguely remember this i vaguely remember this but Two thousand four, me remembered it a lot better, and 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 caught that reference as well.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and people listening, we have done on on close watch. I have done an episode on Man, okay. which is a movie I've seen an insane amount of time uh, at way too young of an age, and so I would definitely, you know, direct people to check that film out or revisit it if they if they uh, have any interest, especially with Raimi sort of in the ether right now. But yes, I it's. It, it doesn't feel you're right. It doesn't feel like a slog. It 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 captures the essence of what Spider Man is, which is you have to make you have to pay your rent, you have to do good in your classes, you have to not piss off MJ, you have to fight supervillains, but ultimately you're going to do so with as plucky an attitude and kind of persevere through it regardless of everything that life throws at you. And this one starts with starts with Peter at the lowest point of any of these three films, at least at the beginning, and then. I mean, kind of my other theory is that the third one feels like really much of a, a response or a, a companion piece to this film in that it starts with him in his brightest place. And I feel like that with little, little teaser to the next episode, I feel like that throws people off right off the bat. It's like, wait, why is Peter Parker happy? This is, doesn't feel right. And I think that sets the tone for the way that that film goes. Whereas here... It's It makes him feel human, it makes him feel relatable, and we're on his side because we know the burden that he carries. And the fact that it is essentially, you know, Spider-Man 2 or Peter Parker's existential crisis. I think you have to buy into the idea that his powers would stop functioning if he's if his heart isn't in it. And, it, you know, it's that classic superhero movie dilemma of, you know, choosing between having a normal life or your superhero identity. Superman 2 did it. Uh, at least a couple of the Batmans did it, including the Dark Knight. So it's it. What do what do you think it is of that about Spider-Man two that it kind of tackles that theme of duality in a way that feels that feels unique and and uh, distinctive to Spider-Man?
1: Well, I think first of all is that Peter Parker, at least as he's represented here, not so much in the MCU, is is an everyman. You know, we talk about Superman is an alien. Batman is one of the world's wealthiest people. Peter Parker is just some schlub. And I think that's why, these, that's why these kind of stories work. And that's the genius of going way, way back to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby creating this character, that they made him that way for a reason, so that people could identify with him when he couldn't pay his rent, when he was unlucky in love when he was failing his classes, or whatever it is, because those are experiences that people have. And that's not to say that aspects of Superman or Batman or other characters aren't relatable. But I think why this kind of thing works so well with Spider-Man is because he starts out as a guy who is relatable, as an everyman kind of figure. And Raimi understands that. And there's a lot of stuff in here that's just personal drama. I was reading, you know, going through like letterboxed reviews of this when I was logging my viewing of it yesterday, and uh, some people complaining about the subplot with Aunt May getting evicted or whatever. And sure, it doesn't have direct bearing on the major action, but I really liked that plot because it's just another aspect of the everyday struggle that Peter and his family are going through. I think Rosemary Harris is super underrated in the way she plays Aunt May, especially because much bigger stars have come along to play Aunt May later on. And so I think Raimi really gets that the essential thing about Peter Parker is that he is this everyday bumbling, struggling guy and life is getting him down. And I think that's maybe also one of the key differences between this one and Spider-Man 3 is that all the rough things that happen to Peter in this movie really come from outside or they come from his attempt to do too much. Whereas in Spider-Man 3, a lot of the problems come because Peter is
0: a dick. And I think, <laughs> I think. That well, no, it's because there's an alien symbiote. did you see? It fell from the sky conveniently yeah, to the but, back of his scooter. But,
1: but it is, it is feeding his inherent <laughs> no, okay. dickishness. So, so I think not that he can't, he doesn't have to be a saint, but I think that really switches up where instead of responding to difficult situations in a way that is maybe not always the best, Peter is creating difficult situations in that third movie. So I think the balance here is just is just perfect. And again, Raimi really understands Spider-Man and what makes that character work. And then he also brings so much of his own sensibility to it. And it just melds perfectly here.
0: i, I- you mentioned Aunt May and, and her eviction notice and all of that, which I, I agree. I had a note of that as well. I think that's such a beautiful character note to have that in there. I mean, I can't imagine an MCU movie now having even the scene where 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 Peter's at the laundromat and he's, you know, he puts the Spider-Man suit in with his whites and the colors run. It's just one <laughs> other thing. Yeah. To add to the pile of things that he has to figure out. It's like, great, now all my clothes are red and blue. I I, I love the, that they have all of that in there. And I love that how much this movie is just about every... It's deconstructing kind of every element of what he's carrying around on a daily basis. You know, it's, it's the weight of the uncertainty of wanting to be with MJ, but not feeling like you're able to be with MJ. But then as soon as MJ says, oh, I, I'm seeing someone... He's like, wait, what? Do you mean my window's closing? I mean, you know, he he. Part of him was hoping that one day that might come around. You know, he tries in this one at a certain point to give up being Spider-Man, and that doesn't work out so well. There's there's Jameson yelling at him to take pig. Like I think the, the 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 sequence at the gala is such a perfect microcosm of everything that Peter is enduring at that moment because you have MJ, you have Jameson, you have him getting bumped in by people. He tries to get a a glass of uh, champagne or an hors d'oeuvre and nothing is, you know, he's missing out constantly. You have Harry over there, slapping him across the face, Will Smith style, I guess now to be topical. And it's just, I, I love the way that that sequence sort of crescendos in, in sort of breaking down everything that Peter's going through. And, you mentioned Rosemary Harris. I one hundred percent think that she is the mVp of of this movie in 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 a lot of ways, first of which is because she she is the embodiment of Peter's guilt. You have this that scene the confession scene with him and her and and about what happened with Uncle Ben and where we finally get some payoff from for the first one there. You have the hero speech, which, for my money, is one of the best monologues in any comic book movie ever because it captures exactly what this genre is supposed to be, is supposed to do at its best. It's supposed to inspire. It's supposed to, you know, give us a distraction and escapist kind of entertainment, but also inspire us to be better people and all of that. What are your thoughts on, on May's hero speech and how it's kind of the mission statement for, I feel like for the superhero genre, like what it's... It, it at its best, what it's trying to do. What Superman the movie and Spider-Man 2 and The Dark Knight, what these movies are trying to teach us.
1: Yeah, it's a great speech and it's the kind of thing that could be super, super corny. And it is super corny mm-hmm. in some ways, but it works because that's the tone that Raimi has established here. And because Ro- Rosemary Harris is a really good actor and delivers it really well in a way that makes you believe it is an honest emotional expression coming from her character. and. There's also a nice undercurrent there of you're you're listening to that speech. And the longer it goes on, the more you start thinking, does Aunt May know that he's Spider-Man? And yep. they never tell you in this movie whether that is the case. And I was the
0: next one. Okay. Or the I mean, next so- one. Yeah, they never tell you that.
1: But but I kept thinking of it, you know, he reveals it to to MJ at the end of this movie. And she says something like, oh, maybe I would have already known. And I kept thinking of something and I could be misremembering this because it's been so long. But I think in the comics, the probably the first time that Peter revealed his identity to Aunt May, because I'm sure it was retconned and redone multiple times. (laughs) But I think the first time that they had him do that, she responded like, of course you're Spider-Man. I've, I've known for years that you're Spider-Man. I just didn't, you know, want to break the illusion or whatever. So that was what I was thinking as I was listening to that. And, but they're not hitting you over the head with it. And Mm -hmm. I like that you can have that kind of ambiguity where it's like, she's not a stupid person and she's clearly like emotionally intuitive. So it's not surprising that she would have figured this out and that she's kind of respecting Peter by not saying so but also trying to give him a speech about what he should be doing as Spider-Man. So there's a lot of layers there that work really well.
0: I I agree. Like I I have always sort of imagined that at some point during the course of this movie she she discovers he's Spider-Man. I don't know exactly when that is because I don't think in the beginning of the film when Harry is ranting about Spider Man and Aunt May is like, the less you see of that man, the better. I don't think she knows at that point. It. My question is whether it's after the the confrontation at the bank, realizing that Peter wouldn't just take off and leave me, <laughs> and leave me, you know, in the midst of Daka a attack, or after his confession even about what happened with Uncle Ben. Like it's unclear exactly when that happens, but yeah, I hundred percent think that she she does figure it out during this film because you get a lot of. Knowing glances from from Aunt May in Peter's direction when, what is it, little little Henry, whatever from next oh, door yeah, is thing, helping yeah. out, yeah, helping yeah. her back. Yeah, you get a lot of she like kind of looks over like Henry and I agree we don't haven't we haven't seen him in the papers these lately. What's up, right? Um, <laughs> and and not to keep beating on the MCU because ultimately I do enjoy those Spider Man movies although not nearly as much as as the Raimi stuff is though in those movies she just like walks in and they may just Marissa Tomei just walks in and what the F and it cuts to you know it cuts to, uh, cr- to credits right as the expletive is starting and <laughs> I think it's it, it it speaks it says a lot about the way those movies handle that dynamic and the way these movies handle it which is very understated, very subtle. There's a lot of, in this, again, in this $200 million superhero movie, there's big, broad performances, you know, after Molina, obviously, and Willem Dafoe, as as Norman Osborn, here briefly, but you know a lot more in the first one, obviously. Uh, big, broad, kind of over the top. They're hamming it up for the camera, and that's fun. But then you get a lot of understated character work from some of these actors as well. And I think Rosemary Harris... You know, a lot of people talk about this trilogy and they talk about Toby and they talk about Kirsten Dunst and they, they you know, they talk about the villains or J. Jonah Jameson and J.K. Simmons obviously is great in that role. But I Rosemary Harris is just she is the glue that holds this this trilogy together. And she's also the she's also the mouthpiece that they give the themes of the movie to. Whenever, you know, in the in the third one, most most blatantly and and unsubtly, but it's it's she is she is essentially Raimi's representative on in the film.
1: Yeah, I mean, all the acting is well, maybe James Franco aside, all the acting in this movie is really good. And Franco's not bad. He just, I feel like, is not up to par, maybe, with everyone else, especially. For the arc that he has to play where he is very slowly becoming a villain, it's maybe not quite as convincing as it could be. Certainly, she, Rosemary Harris, is doing a great job. And I mean, that's another thing about the MCU, where you're talking about. And something that I think, weirdly, that the MCU has completely misunderstood about superhero comics is that they don't care about secret identities. And Mm. this is a silly, like fan nitpicky kind of thing. But I feel like the essence of so many superheroes, not all of them, but the essence of so many superheroes is that duality is the living a double life. It's a big deal for Batman. It's a big deal for Superman. It's a big deal for Iron Man and Spider-Man and a lot of Marvel heroes as well. And they barely are willing to engage with it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they have big famous people in these movies, and they need to show their faces a lot. And that is a very cynical read of it, but I think it's very true. And I think it's admirable because like you watch an Iron Man movie, or you watch a Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland, and literally constantly these characters are like taking off their masks, taking off their helmets so you can see the famous person's face. And Tobey Maguire does very little of that. And when he does do it, it's like a huge deal because he's exposing his identity and it's a giant plot point of the movie. So I, you know, kudos to Raimi and also to Tobey Maguire, who is a big famous person and could have insisted that his face be in the movie more and didn't. And I think that's just just something that is completely lost in those MCU movies.
0: Yeah, I think in this one, he... He voluntarily takes his mask off twice. One because it gets singed during the uh, the train sequence, but then, as you were saying, that leads to this huge, like you know, powerful emotional moment, whatever, with the the people on the train seeing his identity and being willing to to keep their mouths shut and protecting him, and then at the end to appeal to Doc Ock to to appeal to Otto and kind of you know get him to to help him destroy the machine. So both both times it's not to. Yeah, it's not it's not a flashy moment. It's just it's character based. It's story driven. And both times and this is the other thing that I really hit me upon this, the latest of six million times I've watched this film over the last 20 (laughs) years um, is this feels like it's such a it's maybe the most humanist superhero movie And that I mean, it's so much of the it's. He has a, his superpowers. Obviously, came came from a genetically engineered super spider, but also it's like it's the power of the people, the people in the, of New York, the people in his life. You know, it's a power of emotions. Connect. He's he he turns the tide here by appealing to to the scientist in Doc Ock, to the good man in Otto Octavius. You know, the people of New York come together on the train to protect his identity to to stand up for him in front of the supervillain. Obviously, they're unsuccessful, but they make an an effort it's the relationships to to his aunt to his you know to the love of his life to even to his friend harry at varying points like it's it's the relationships and it's the people that empower him it's a very buffy the vampire slayer kind of theme that that this movie carries but i feel like that's another thing that is is not inherent to most superhero movies. It's they're doing it because it's the right thing. They're doing it because, you know, it's the the Batman style. They're obsessed with it. Like that's what the Batman really kind of hones in on. But I feel like so much of these Raimi Spider-Man movies are about people connect connections and, and trying to empower one another. And I think that's a really, again, to feed into Aunt May's speech. It's, it, it makes this movie feel, feel more inspiring, more distinctive and more Spider-Man than any of the other uh, cinematic depictions we've seen so far.
1: Yeah. And I mean, another thing about that, as that I was thinking of, as you were saying that, is that this movie feels like it really takes place in New York. Like yes. it's very New York-y. And the first one, too. The first one I think is one that has like the montage of all the different New Yorkers and with like yeah. Jim Jim Norton in there and stuff. But this one too. And I feel like even though, sure, the MCU version of Spider-Man also lives in New York and I mean has a giant battle on the the Statue of Liberty or whatever. But hey. It, the mcu new york never feels like a real place i mean we have the bat the battle of new york in was it in the first avengers movie i think yep. and it's just like it, it, it's every location i mean every location in the mcu is like a, a green screen uh warehouse in atlanta you know
0: i mean that's just yeah, kind of w- the way that those movies are yeah no i was gonna say i think that's that's part of why they don't feel like they're in new york because they're yeah, they're on a green screen stage. <laughs> exactly. I don't think they don't really think they do a ton of on location shooting at all. And, you know, even in the the, uh, the Tom Holland Spider-Man trilogy, the second one, he's not even in it. He's in Europe for almost the entire time. So it's True. like he's being he's busy being night monkey, apparently over there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, 100%. And, that, and that's the thing. Spider-Man is is the most definitive New York superhero. That's kind of his whole deal he is he's the friendly neighborhood spider-man and so to have the friendly neighborhood spider-man not be in the neighborhood kind of kind of i don't know desecrates the 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 kind of what that character is supposed to be and in speaking and that's again part of what i was saying with the the kind of humanist side of it is that those people are are part of what what empowers him it's like the red the yellow sun for for superman it's it's part of where he draws his his source of his power in a way metaphorically speaking and you get that another moment that i wanted to make sure while i'm on that that tangent is the 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 scene with ursula and when she wants to bring him a piece of cake zero zero chance that would be in a super super in a superhero movie now unless it was like nolan or somebody who had supreme final cut on something He's sad about, you know, he's he's struggling with trying to figure out if he wants to be Spider-Man, if he, if he can't balance both, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of the whole conflict of the movie, obviously. And then he's looking out a window like, am I not supposed to have what I want? You know, how how is it? I, I think it comes after the burning building scene when he's able to save that little girl, but but someone else doesn't get out of the fire in time. I think it's that scene that it comes after, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. But she comes in and she's like, would you like a piece of chocolate cake? And it's it seems it feels incongruous with the rest of the movie in a way, but it doesn't because it's that it's that act of kindness. It's that that kind of recenters him and and takes him out of his funk. It's it's the good people of New York that keep Spider-Man swinging through those streets.
1: Yeah, it's a nice little scene and she's a nice supporting character who. Yeah, it seems like maybe she could be an alternate love interest, but that doesn't really happen. I mean, the same right. as, True for for Betty Brant, uh, played by Elizabeth Banks, who's the secretary, Jonah Jameson's secretary. But you're right. That wouldn't be the only way that would be in like an MCU movie is if it was an Easter egg and it was actually some character who was going to turn out to be another superhero, like eight <laughs> movies down the road that they have to throw in there. To, yeah, to,
0: Ursula to, gets her Disney uh, Plus series the next Right. Or exactly. Or yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And not that there aren't some of those in this movie. I mean... We have to say, Ramey is not immune to that. We've got Kirk Connors here, played by Dylan Baker, who would become the lizard. I mean, that never happened with this version of him, but that's that's the deal. Or jo- John Jameson, who is Jonah Jameson's son, who is an astronaut and briefly is engaged to Mary Jane. And he also is, is it Man-Wolf? Is that the name <laughs> I believe the character? So. Yeah, believe so. Yeah, yeah. He's like a, he's like a werewolf. Eventually, so obviously those characters are put in there because people would recognize that that might happen down the road. But I feel like in the MCU, every character is that. And if a character isn't that for some reason, fans will be mad about it. Like, what? What? Who is this Ursula? Who is just Peter Parker's neighbor? That's not possible. It can't happen. <laughs> Unacceptable.
0: It's a ni- it's a nice balance of comic book characters. You know, you have Robbie Robertson in the in the bugle there, who's also present there in, in the comics and. And then characters like Mr. Dickovich, who is, you know, everybody everybody remembers that character. He's been memed. I think multiple. a lot of people I've spoken to were kind of hoping he would show up at the end of No Way Home when Tom Holland gets his little apartment. <laughs> so it's like those characters themselves have become like, Hopeful Easter eggs in in other Spider Man other iterations of the Spider Man franchise, but yeah, he he balances them well, I think, with the the original characters where you it just adds to the richness of this world. It adds to the tapestry of supporting players that we have in this thing, of which there are, are of which there are many. We haven't even we haven't even mentioned Bruce Campbell yet, who who uh, you know is it's a prerequisite if Sam Raimi's making a movie, we got to get some Bruce Campbell in there. And this is, I think. Probably his the best of his of his three cameos, just because he, as he as he often likes to say, he gets he's the only character that really defeats Spider Man in this trilogy. (laughs) What are your what are your thoughts on the the Bruce Campbell cameo in this film?
1: Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I think it's a minor element, but but that's true. That's a good point. Is that he, as the usher who will not let Peter into the play, does does defeat him. Peter does not. I you know I I haven't seen hadn't seen this movie in quite a while and so there were a lot of aspects that i didn't entirely remember and that was one scene where i thought is there going to be a bit where he like swings on top of the building and gets in through the roof or something like that but no he's just he's just straight up but discouraged and defeated and and slinks away because the usher won't let him in so yeah it's always fun to see Bruce Campbell, I know when these movies were going, there was a lot of speculation that he would eventually play Mysterio. And I don't know if you're talking about the, the, the you know, aborted plans for Sam Raimi's fourth and fifth Spider-Man movies. And I don't remember if that was actually one of those plans, but he could have been very fun in that role.
0: Well, some people are wondering what role he's going to play in uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get a, a variant of uh, Quentin Beck. In that movie, I could finally get that paid off. But yeah, t- it's speaking speaking of which, we do get a Doctor Strange reference in this film since we're on the topic of Easter eggs. It is one of the suggested names for uh, Doctor Octopus here where, where Jameson says that it's, oh, that's good, but it's taken. So somewhere in this universe, there is either a Doctor Strange, perhaps not superpowered. Maybe he's just a, a successful surgeon down the street from the Daily Bugle. But there is a Doctor Strange in the Raimi universe Uh, It's also works now as a a fun little bit of foreshadowing for when we'd see these characters down the line.
1: Right. And I think the the other thing about that is like, yes, now we we assume that that that's always what those things are. But at this time, I'm sure that Raimi and the writers weren't thinking like, oh, we should Not say that because we can have him show up later and then he can have his own movie or something. They were just like, wouldn't it be funny if somebody said that? Boom, they said it. That's it. Nobody had to have like 10 corporate meetings about whether that was possible. And that's something that just doesn't it just doesn't exist anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. That's absolutely correct. We talked about the mj and peter storyline sort of so what do you think about their their love story their romance do you think it do you think it works because i know some fans online tend to be very critical of mj in these films do you think that their story do you buy the the connection that they share or is do you feel like the movie is working a little too hard to to make it seem like true love
1: no i bought their connection and i was again having not seen this in a little while I was surprised at how much the movie keeps them apart. I assumed watching the first movie that by the time we got to the second movie, they would stop delaying that. (laughs) You know, that basically the whole first movie, he's pining away for her. And at the end, she says, oh, wait, I love you too. And then he has he feels like he has to reject her to keep her safe. And I figured, well, we'll get past that. And we don't until the very, very end of this movie. And so I was impressed that they were delaying what I'm sure at that point would have been a a strong fan desire to see them together, especially you've got Mm -hmm. that iconic kiss in the first movie, which is like become one of the most famous movie kisses ever. People would be clamoring for that. And yet we keep it away. And I think it's part of Peter's growth and part of his internal conflict of I I love her and I, I want nothing more than for us to be together, but I can't. Uh, do that. I can't put her in danger. Never mind the fact that in two movies, she's captured by two villains (laughs) before he does this, but, but it's an understandable motivation. It might put her in further danger. So no, I like it. I think Kirsten Dunst is a great actor in general. And MJ is the kind of character that could just be, you know, is a supporting character, could just be like the generic girlfriend who's around when she needs to be. But I feel like Kirsten Dunst does make her into a fully realized character and she has her own internal conflict. Like, what the hell is up with this doofus? (laughs) Like, why? I'm laying it all on the line for him. Like, why is he not responding in any way? And she moves on to John Jameson and it's understandable, but you can see it doesn't really spark for her. But at the same time, they don't have to make John Jameson into like some sort of horrible jerk or like Flash Thompson from the first movie. Um, He's just kind of a guy and that's fine because he's not Peter Parker and that's the point. So no, I like the arc of this and and we do get the gratification at the end. I think maybe it would have been a little too sadistic if this movie would end and they were still apart. I think you get just enough of that at the end and she has agency. She says to him, "Let me make my own decision here. Yep. Let me decide what is and isn't safe for me, and don't make that decision for me." And that's a powerful moment for her as her own character.
0: And the movie threads their their story throughout this throughout throughout the runtime so well. You you we have that sort of again corny narration that all these movies open with, and then it leads directly into MJ again, like all three of them sort of do. Uh, pretty early on. You have the billboards sort of as this iconography of how she's like literally hovering around everywhere he goes. He can't shake the feeling that he, you know, he he wants to be with her. He he can't kind of move past that. And she's trying to force herself to move past that by getting engaged to. And that's like you said, that's a good point. They don't make John Jameson an asshole. Like he's just, he's a nice guy and there's just not that chemistry there. And she's trying, like she's trying to force it. She's trying to make it happen, but she can't shake thought, thinking of Peter either you get that scene it's remarkable to me that it's 87 minutes in and I clocked it when we finally get her we finally get some kind of follow-up to the tease at the end of the first one when she kisses Peter and at the at the cemetery and she's like oh, wait a minute that's is that Spider-Man is Peter Spider-Man what's going on that you have to imagine she like repressed that for a year being like yeah no that's ridiculous MJ you're playing tricks on yourself and now she 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 tests it out on John. She's like, well, maybe maybe the, even if he's not Spider Man, maybe I'll feel the same way. I'll feel that okay. spark, and it's and it's not there. And to the people that criticize this character, one like you said, she has her own life. She's trying to move on. She's got her own career. She's not sitting around waiting for Peter to to call her. She's got shit to do. And then and you put yourself in her shoes when she meets him when she calls him to meet him at the diner. And he's like, I'm changed. I thought there's something I had, I had thought I had to do. I don't have to. Let's be together. And she's like, No, I'm, I'm engaged to John. Whatever. And she's like, Maybe let's give this a shot. Peter, do you love me or what, or not? And he's like, I, I can't. I don't love you. I have, I've maybe I rushed into things. She's like, Motherfucker, are you serious? Like, uh, how could you? How could she not be pissed off in that? Like, she's, she's being put through the emotional ringer in this movie almost as much as he is, and she doesn't even have to deal with all the. Well, the superhero stuff, you know? Right. I mean, it is. If you look at it from her perspective, he's giving her
1: the runaround in a really (laughs) inconsiderate kind of way. You know, obviously, eventually she finds out that he's Spider-Man and some of that kind of comes into place. But you have to think, too, that maybe, and I don't remember if this comes up in the next movie or not, but maybe she's a bit resentful that he wouldn't trust her with that. You know, that there she's declaring her love and he is not willing to be open or honest or vulnerable or whatever until she basically forces him to be. So, I I don't know why people would find this character distasteful. I think there's a lot of sexism in superhero yep. fandom. Yep. But yep, maybe that's a whole separate topic to get into.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I I agree. And I and I I think that I think their relationship is by far the most dynamic and equal of the versions of spider-man and love interest that we've seen i think you get a lot of chemistry in the uh with andrew garfield and emma stone i don't know if the character doesn't feel as as fully formed as as mj does here but but yeah i i love i love their chemistry in this movie and i love the way it ends and to your point earlier honestly if he would have told her she might have been safer because at least she'd understand <laughs> why these villains well, let's keep right. her. Right. Like, what is going on I kissed Spider-Man one time in an alleyway. He saved my life a couple times. We're not like pen pals or anything. Why is everybody going after me? So, that's that's a good point. I think yeah, it's it ends in, in in a very satisfying way and, and getting that the fact that that not only do they end up together by the end of this, but she's accepting of his responsibility as Spider-Man. She urges him to to go out after the sirens and it and it ends not, not on uh, him swinging through the city. It ends on a shot of of MJ looking out the window, being like, my life's going to get a whole lot more complicated, isn't it? And I think that says all you you know you kind of need to about that relationship at that point and what the road ahead is going to look like in Spider-Man 3.
1: Yeah, and it's disappointing because it feels like they've earned a lot over the course of those movies and then it just gets destroyed almost immediately in the next movie. But again, that's not the issue for us right now. It ends in a nice way here. And gives you, yeah, it gives you hope for what the dynamic will be like in the future and and what we'll be able to explore going forward.
0: Absolutely. I want to get a little more into uh, Doc Ock. So we have, when we meet Otto Octavius at the beginning here, I, you know, obviously Alfred Molina, like you said, such a great performance. There's a reason they they led the marketing for No Way Home with, we got Molina back, everybody. Uh, He's the gold standard for one of the, you know, one of the few sort of gold standards for supervillains in these, in these movies. And I think he's instantly sympathetic. You, you meet him and him and Rosie as sort of this ideal love counter, kind of, kind of counterpointing what Peter would hope to have someday. You even get a, another lot li- in, in a very Aunt may fashion. Otto's Otto kind of explains one of the themes of the movie, which is here is if you keep something as complicated as love sort of inside, it'll make you sick where we literally have Peter dealing with a crisis a personal crisis of identity over the course of this movie. So we get the birth of Doc Ock scene. And as we were saying, this is sort of an idea that is goofy on paper, but here Raimi does enough work to sort of ground it in in his his version of reality in these films. What are your, what is it about that character that you think that makes him so dynamic on screen? The fact, it it should be ridiculous. It should be really stupid that there's a man with four metal arms attached to his spine and which are apparently talking to him and which are apparently very evil and really (laughs) pissed off. That's the other thing. I was like, why are his, okay, first of all, I get you want him to remain, maintain control. Second, why are the arms sentient? And and third, why are they, why are they so mad? Yeah, it's completely- (laughs) It's
1: completely ridiculous. And I think it works because of what we were kind of talking about before, because Raimi fully invests in it. He doesn't say like, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. Wink wink. He's just here it is. You gotta accept it because I accept it. And because Melina never breaks from the the realism of it and the seriousness and the way that the character believes in it. So you've got that great performance that is fully committed. You've got the tone. And I think Raimi knows, you know, you mentioned a little at the the, like horror aspects of those creation scenes, both first when that experiment kind of goes wrong. And then later in the hospital, when he's waking up as the new villainous version of himself, he knows that the right tone for that is like a monster movie is like a Mm -hmm. horror movie. It's very, very Dr. Frankenstein. It's very James Whale in that first sequence. And then it's, kind of slasher movie later on when you just see the arms and you don't see Octavius himself. And Raimi has made movies like this, so he knows exactly what's going on there. And so you go along with it because you're like, okay, I see this continuum here with Frankenstein and with maybe even Evil Dead, if you know Raimi. And it's the kind of thing that, again, I don't know that you'd be able to do or allowed to do in a modern superhero movie. He's pushing the boundaries of his PG-13 rating a bit There, So yeah, I think it's a combination of all of those things. It's the, the tone that the movie has already established. It's Melina's performance. And it's Raimi's like full command of the material, commitment to the material. That he, there's never a sense in any of this stuff that Raimi is just for hire. That Raimi is just there because this is the thing that is available for him to do which I feel like is a lot of the case with modern superhero directors and sadly, possibly for Raimi now as well. Um, we don't know. But yeah, I think it, it all, it, it is ridiculous. If you like your, the way you're, you're describing it, it sounds so stupid. You know, you tell somebody like, what, Why?" The other thing that I thought of in this, in this time too, so he is deciding he's going to rebuild the machine and because right. the, the arms are kind of talking to him about it and he's like, we need all this equipment but we need money to get the equipment. How do we get the money? Oh, we're going to rob a bank. But like, why pay for the equipment in the first place if you're willing to (laughs) steal stuff? Like, why don't you just go steal the equipment and kind of cut the middleman there? And so that's absurd. Obviously it's because, Dr. Octopus robbing a bank is like a comic book thing that we had to include, but really there's no need for him to rob the bank. He could just go. And I love that then after he robs the bank and presumably, you know, he gets away with some money and then there's a later scene of him in the lab with a bunch of crates of like equipment. And I was just thinking like, so did he (laughs) go to like a store and buy that with, with his stolen gold pieces or like what happened here? So that was a little absurd, but, but you don't think about it so much because you're so caught up in the world.
0: Right. Yeah. No, because the, the action is so kinetic and, you know, the Oscar winning visual effects here, which which, by the way, look infinitely better than the next time we see Doc Ock, uh, Molina's Doc Ock, because their practical effects. Obviously, that's Raimi is very well versed in how to do things practically, as we know from the Evil Dead films. And those things we have to, of course, shout out or shout out were actual puppets that people were co- were. were we're controlling on set, not just you know Molina in a harness with a bunch of CG stuff happening. I think it's it completely sells the tangibility of of that character in those moments where he's having conversations with his with his metal arms and and from a character perspective, he 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 his transformation feels believable because it happens. It mostly happens behind his back is the thing too. Because he reacts in the lab because he's, you know, he's fixated on or during the demonstration, because he's fixated on on making the machine work. And so he likes, you know, he reacts when Spider-Man tries to unplug it, and therefore spelling his own doom. But then he's unconscious, he gets electrocuted, he gets unconscious, and then he murders a bunch of people without even realizing it. Like he doesn't understand what he's done until they take the blindfold off of him, and that by that point he's he's already in it. He's already a killer. So what's he gonna do? You know, it's it's that, it's like well, I've gone this far. Now I might as well continue the continue my machine. So that it wasn't all for nothing. So I'm not a wanted man. Rosie didn't die, and I did went through all of this, you know, to only to end up in prison. I could still at least finish my uh, finish finish my experiment here and 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 get the power of the sun back in the palm of my hand. That kind of thing so i i love that 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 character work fits with his motivation even though yeah obviously him him going to a going to a bank to get some money so he could like place an order it does feel a little a little wild we do we do get a little bit of underhandedness with his his equipment wise when he does when he forms that alliance with harry to get the tritium so we get that's that I think is is Harry's sort of continuing fall from grace. You sort of mentioned earlier about James Franco's performance being not as strong as some of the other actors. What do you think about Harry's arc in here? We start we the first one, he's in the shadow of Peter. His father is, you know, not really making time for him unless he's using him as a pawn and catching Spider-Man towards the end of the first one. And then here he's trying to still prove himself to his father. And then ultimately lands on, "I guess I need to avenge my father's death and, and kill Spider-Man and Peter Parker, who, who we know now knows are one and the same. What are your thoughts on his, his, that turn that he has? Does Harry essentially suffer a psychotic break in that moment when he takes the mask off Spider-Man? Because it I kind of seems like he does.
1: Yeah, I guess so. And that's another thing that, like the, the, his, the end of his arc and the sort of cliffhangerness of it. Is really good and we get Willem Defoe to come back and appear in the mirror, and Harry discovers all of the green goblin stuff hidden behind a wall, which obviously it was totally not in the first movie. And they just decided right. to said it had to be there. But that's all yeah. fine. I'm I'm cool with that. But yeah, the 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 descent into madness or whatever, I think part of the problem is that James Franco isn't as good as Alfred Molina. And Harry's arc is absolutely no more ridiculous than Otto Octavius's arc, but it's just not quite sold as well, I think, from Franco's perspective. But that did bug me a little because the whole deal in the first movie is that Norman Osborn is driven kind of crazy because he takes the serum, right? right. And But Harry never took the serum. So how did he go crazy and start not only go crazy, but go crazy in the exact same way? as his father, you know, by seeing this sort of hallucination of the Green Goblin and the laughter and whatever. So I, yeah, I don't know if all of that particularly added up. I do like the arc of it, though, where the character is going. If you, of course, if you're familiar with the comics, you know where their character is going to go. But I feel like the way that it's built is is good. And like so many of the things in this film, it leaves you with a feeling of, I can't wait to see how this is going to play out. What is going to happen next? Like, this is a satisfying film on its own, but everything that it sets up for the future makes you think, wow, that is going to be super cool. And you're excited to see maybe Harry is going to become the Green Goblet now. But I do think it suffers from James Franco not being as good an actor as Willem Dafoe or as Alfred Molina, making these crazy over-the-top villains into something believable.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's, there's definitely some truth to that. It's also, to your point about the serum, there's a bit of a disconnect. Like, I think when we see him, the final time we see Harry in this movie, it's at what was going to be MJ and John's wedding, and he's wearing a green bow tie and kind of looking creepy. Right. uh, Which, Or maybe that's just James Franco's face. I mean, who knows these (laughs) days. But then, you know, sort of implying that maybe he has already mess with the formula and become the green goblin. And then in the third one, there's a sequence after he is at the, after he's at one of MJ's plays in the balcony, again, looking down, being creepy, wearing, I think green, he, uh, he goes and comes out of the chamber having already taken in the gas. So, but then he doesn't seem any more insane than he was here. So uh, it's, it's, it's unclear whether his, like, I have a theory that his insanity is not the result of the serum, but the result of, the psychological pressure that put on him by his father and and in his family, and and the discovery that his sworn enemy is his best friend, and he just can't process that. So he he manifests his father, at least giving him some kind of focus, giving him a mission to to like something to drive him, because he literally, as he says at one point in this movie, he has nothing left but Spider Man. Like this is the only thing he's got going on. He's he's very fixated on on his spider infestation in the in the Osborn manner. So. I, I think that it's it's an interesting arc, and as as we sort of alluded to, it it doesn't pay off quite in the way people would would want it to. I think it you know it, your mileage may vary as whether Spider Man Three handles that storyline well, but it's definitely muddled at best.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think I guess in terms of the insanity, you could also argue that maybe the insanity never came from the serum on either was born, and that it's some sort of hereditary, you know, mental illness or whatever. They do mention in the first one, I think that only a small number of people who were experimented on with the serum went insane. So, or a small number of mice went insane. I also did wonder that in the first one, like, how do you quantify mice going insane? <laughs> but, you know, so you could argue that even though it's sort of catalyzed by the serum, maybe that level of psychotic insanity is just within the genetic makeup of the osborne family and this is all extra textual stuff that you have to do in your head that's not exactly represented on screen but you can come up with it if you want
0: to yeah i think it's i think it is it's there the one thing the difference is well i was gonna say one thing is that harry is not having conversations with a mask or hearing a voice but i guess he is hearing a voice of his father so oh yeah uh, that's how he's man he's manifesting he's he's his, his arguments are with his father's ghost, not the, you know, the other personality that lives in, in his, in his head. So that's, that's how they're, they're handling their, their goblin, their goblin genes differently, if that's the case. Uh, a couple a couple of things we need to make sure we, we iron out here before we, before we start moving along. One, the, the raindrops keep falling on my head sequence. Where do you, where do you land on that? I know it's obviously works as sort of a companion to the, <laughs> the James Brown dance sequence and the third one, which people have a lot of feelings about. Do you think the raindrop sequence here works in sort of illustrating Peter's attempt to try and, and live a normal life?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's a lot better than that other sequence, and I think there's there's the contrast right between that song and and his attitude, and then the fact that maybe it's not really as sunny as it seems to be, and he trips and it almost falls, and you're already getting the sense that he is wearing these rose colored glasses or whatever and this isn't really going to solve all of his problems like he thinks that it might so it's it's silly but i think like all the silly stuff in this movie it fits together and that it maybe it didn't fit together in the third movie and maybe that's just partially a luck of the draw in some ways that maybe some of the stuff in this movie that's silly isn't all that much all all that much less silly than what's in the third movie but it just didn't quite balance out As well as it as it should have, or as they wanted it to. So I like that sequence. I think it's fun. It maybe pushes the boundaries of silliness a little, but I enjoyed it.
0: The freeze frame towards the end, I think, is always like I'm like, "Eh, I could have done without that actually that little flourish at the very end of the song. But yeah, yeah, other than that, no, I think I think it works. The subway fight or the train fight, I guess, amazing. Maybe one of the best superhero battles in 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 any movie, any superhero movie, period. Uh, certainly looks better than 90% of things today in these movies.
1: Right. And I think there's also a real sense of danger that like there's real people on this subway and they might die or get severely injured and Peter might not be able to stop it. And you really are emotionally invested in it. Not only the, like it looks cool and it's, it's it's exciting and suspenseful and the action is well represented and everything. It's all of that. But there's real emotional content to it. And I mean, I think about in contrast, for example, to like the the big bus fight in Shang-Chi, which is great, is really entertaining. But I never had much of a sense of the people on that bus being in like severe danger or that it really mattered to the movie about those people. And it's all just about the crazy action and the bystanders are sort of uh, an afterthought. And not that the movie won't give you a little line there to indicate that, oh, the people are fine or whatever. but It's not the point. And I think that it is the point in that train sequence. And it shows you how much Peter cares about average people. And like what you were saying earlier about how a lot of his strength is drawn from those people, it really gets, it's not just a cool fight. It's the central theme of the movie. So certainly it's great. And it is, I I don't know, I'm sure people make lists of the great action sequences in superhero movies or whatever, but it has to be way, way up there.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And and, yeah, Doc Ock's, his main uh, strategy there is tossing people to tossing people off the train to to kind of slow Spider-Man down and then ultimately busting the brakes so that he can get it. He can escape. He doesn't even catch, uh, uh, Spider doesn't even catch him in that in that battle. It's it's all becomes about saving the people, I think. Yeah. And we should also mention Danny Elfman's score in this film. Again, amazing. Perfect, perfect composer for this character, I think. He, he nailed it in the first one. And his his additional themes here for, for Doc Ock, I think, are really strong and, and carry the menace of what you were saying about how that character does have that. He has that presence. He feels like a threat. He feels scary. It's the horror monster movie element that uh, when he arrives on the scene, that sort of don't, that kind of like don't, 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 Like it feels like, oh shit, Doc Ock's arrived. And it, you know, it, it it feels, it feels scary. It feels threatening for this character. And I think that's, that's something that in, in the same way that Tim Burton with his Batman movies sort of tapped into the, the universal monster-esque quality of, of like the penguin, for example, I think Raimi does a similar thing here with Green Goblin and Doc Ock of the tragedy. Cause all the universal monster characters are also tragic, tragic figures in their own way as well yeah you know this is this is the modern equivalent you know if people like to say superhero uh, comic books are are the modern mythology this this these are you know the equivalent of the universal monsters these days is the the doc ox, the green goblins, the uh, the magnetos, uh, not so much the joker. <laughs> He's not really a tragic character. He's the wild card, uh, which I guess makes sense but but yeah, let's see. Have you ever seen Spider-Ma man point one? I wanted I was curious about that. I don't even know what that is. Okay, so there is a kind of counterpoint to everything we've said in this conversation for so far. Spider-Man 2.1 is an extended cut of the film. I think okay. it's only like six minutes longer, but it is it it is basically 10% more than you need. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like it, the, the the Hal Sparks sequence, the cameo on the elevator, which in here is pretty short and and sort of, you know, understated and funny and moves on goes on too long. And there's a sequence where J. Jonah Jameson tries on the Spider-Man costume that he has in his office. There's there's shit like that. There's a couple beats that I think are interesting. There's an, an extra scene, I think, with MJ and, uh, and her friend on, on the play, the other actress. And then there is a little bit more, I think, with Peter and the Doctor in that scene where he's like, in my dream, I'm Spider-Man. Uh, right. That, which is which is again a great, beautiful conversation scene. Two people in a room talking about their feelings. It's kind of the thing we were talking about earlier. But yeah, it's it is exa- it it's exactly what this movie doesn't need. If people are interested in checking it out, you can I'm sh- you can find it everywhere. I'm sure. But it's it it, it dampens the the film and it, and it bloats it out a little bit more than it needs to. Kind of taking a step in the direction of where. Some of the other Marvel movies would go when they're now they're all two and a half, three hours, and most of them don't need to be. Definitely. So that's, I'm
1: assuming the way you're describing it, then that's not like an official director's cut. That's just a, a fan edit of some
0: kind. No, no, it's an official, it's an official, oh, okay. uh, it's official cut. It's on the, it's on my Blu ray set that oh, I have of the trilogy. Okay. It is, I don't know. I mean, they like to throw the, the term director's cut out there all the time. I'm sure if Sam Raimi would say that the uh, theatrical version, is his director's cut and that right. sony wanted to put those scenes back in to remarket it as a new dvd release or whatever Sure, yes that makes sense uh, which happened a million times back in the day the age of dvds or where they were running the market but it's it's out there it exists i think on the, on the next episode i think i do briefly mention the editor's cut of spider-man 3 which is a different thing that i think actually improves that by about as much as the spider-man 2.1 cut weakens this so they kind of balance each other out I guess but but yeah is there anything more about Spider-Man 2 you we want to make sure we talk about before we before we uh, touch on No Way Home and then start winding things down
1: I don't know I mean we've uh, we've talked about a lot here so I I feel like I've we've covered everything I mean I'm sure there are an entire podcast that you know where there's uh 25 episodes about spider-man 3 or spider-man 2 but i feel like we've gotten it and uh if for some reason someone is listening to this and they've never seen spider-man 3 you you should see it so that's that's the last thing spider-man, I Spider-Man 2 i think you spider-man thought... 2 oh my god right don't, don't, don't <laughs> wow. see spider-man 3 whatever but no well, let's check
0: right out, yeah. 2, yeah 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 so so no way home obviously what 15 years after Just about 15 years after Spider-Man 3, almost 20 years after this film, the marketing starts coming out. And everybody knew because Alfred Molina and Jamie Foxx are very bad at keeping secrets. Everybody knew that that was going to be the the storyline for No Way Home. That film obviously is filled with bazillion Easter eggs to especially the first two Raimis led by Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin. And then I'd say Doc Ock's kind of the secondary main villain in that film. What are your, do you feel like No Way Home builds, successfully builds on the Doc Ock story as it's perceived here? Is he taken like literally as he's pulling the, the, the that structure down into the water? Or like, cause that's the other thing I was trying to figure out. Cause he says that he was taken there right before he, he died. But is it after Peter appeals to his good nature? Because he knows who Peter Parker is. So I feel like MCU is trying to retcon some shit.
1: Yeah, they're definitely playing a bit fast and loose with that stuff in No Way Home. And I don't mind that. I mean, it's comic book multiverse nonsense anyway. Like, <laughs> I'm not about to care. No, I mean, I, I like No Way Home. I think it's nowhere near as good as, as Spider-Man 2 for all the various MCU reasons that we've kind of talked talked about. But I, I enjoyed it on the whole. I feel like... I went into No Way Home thinking this is just going to be two and a half hours of, hey, look at that thing. And yeah. it wasn't, or at least to me, I didn't feel like it was. I feel like they took the characters, as you're saying, kind of as as they were, they took them at face value. They said, okay, this is what we've got and let's actually build on that. So I think Molina is very good. I think Willem Dafoe is very good in both of them in No Way Home. And I think it does take seriously the idea of Octavius as this sort of conflicted figure. And I feel like in a lot of ways, the central thesis of No Way Home, which is that the Tom Holland version of Peter Parker decides, I'm going to help these people, you know, I'm going to help them not be villainous anymore, really comes from Otto Octavius and what Rami establishes in this movie. That. He doesn't want to be villainous. Unlike in the first movie where you have Norman Osborn trying to appeal to Peter Parker, like, oh, no, help me. I didn't want to do this. And he's pretending he's faking. Here, Octavius is genuine. He doesn't want to be a villain. He doesn't want to kill people. He's he's gotten, it's all gotten out of control and he's not happy about it. So, I mean, I think a lot of the reason that No Way Home works is because it borrows good stuff from Sam Raimi. You know, <laughs> yeah. is that the MCU is terrible at creating good villains, and the the only way they can get good villains is to steal them from other movies. So, I but I I mean, I like No Way Home. It was fun to see those characters again. I think Tobey Maguire too is does a good job, and also gives you a sense of that version of Peter Parker progressing and where he would be in his life at that time. So, I mean, that's what I liked about No Way Home. It wasn't just, look what we got, look at the toys we put in the same box. It was, let's think about these characters and where they would be and where we would want them to go. And I'm very concerned about them coming back because (laughs) I feel like they did it well once when I wouldn't have thought that they would. I really doubt they're going to do it well again, but we'll see, I guess.
0: Yeah, my, I have a a complicated uh, relationship with No Way Home because I, I enjoy the things that you're saying, but I also feel like it's a problem that the primary Spider-Man is the le- the one I'm least invested in in that film. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm more interested in what Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield, who, in my opinion, steals the movie with with his like kind of manic energy and that character sort of coming out of what seems like a, an extended depression after... Gwen Stacy's death in the Amazing Spider-Man Two, but yeah, I love the the added richness that 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 film adds to this because obviously, of course, in this universe, Norman Osborn and Otto Octavius would know each other, but we've never seen them interact. So to see right. them here, being like Norman, what are you doing here? You're dead, you know. Right. The follow up to that, the follow up middle aged Peter Parker, telling uh, telling Doc Ock that he's trying, his, you know, he's trying to do better still. I thought all that stuff was was really beautifully done. I yeah, again, most of my concerns with that film are more tied to the MCU than they are either of the other versions of that character's adventures. But yeah, I, all the stuff with Doc Ock and and Spider Man, Tobey Maguire Spider Man, I think work work really well in that. It's I agree with you. I'm worried that they're going to try and reopen that that sandbox and uh, botch it this time. I, I think. And you'll people hear in the next episode, I think that Spider Man three, for all its faults, ends in a in a relatively Conclusive place, and I don't really feel like the need to make a four and five or six or any more with with that. I I would like to see more Andrew Garfield Spider Man, even though those movies were not great, just because I feel like there's promise there. And if the whole point of the of No Way Home was redemption, I'd like to see more redemption for that for that version of the of the character. But yeah, I think I think it does nicely put these characters to bed. So so yeah, so that's actually a nice transition into my next question, which is what do you think the Spider-Man, Sam Raimi trilogy contributes to the genre. What is the legacy of these three films?
1: Well, I mean, I think as much as we're talking about how Sam Raimi gets to do his own thing here, it, that these movies in a lot of ways establish what people think of is a superhero movie. That because there was not much of that around at the time, that movies like this and the Brian Singer X-Men movies... And, you know, going back a little ways to those Tim Burton Batman movies and maybe the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, you know, they're, they're, they're occasional forays into that, that were unique and rare and really gave people an idea of what kind of, what these kinds of movies would be like. And I think as much as the MCU has its own identity and does a lot of things that have maybe become a little redundant or monotonous or whatever that are its own thing, I think and and the fact that we should also uh, acknowledge that Kevin Feige is a producer on this film. That going into creating the MCU, I guarantee you those producers and probably Jon Favreau too, working on Iron Man, were looking at these Sam Raimi Spider Man movies to think, how do we make a good superhero movie? So I think that. Maybe Sam Raimi, you know, maybe they created a monster in a way because of what what things have have kind of become. Probably more even than like those earlier Batman movies or the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. This and the Bryan Singer X Men movies are responsible for what is a superhero movie and especially what is a Marvel superhero.
0: Yeah, it's the combination of you know broad action, adventure, sci fi, and but also having a steady steady stream of levity making them personal character stories it's like what all the MCU movies try to do with varying levels of success and yeah i think yeah. that these movies are you know people like to mention oh but you know the the what about the x men movies what about blade like Mar- those are what made marvel movies and like not really <laughs> when this movie came out the first one and made 400 million that's what people were like oh we're going to take our notes from that and then after that you saw you know daredevil and Fantastic 4 and a, a an entire like run of ghost rider for god's sake in the in the mid to late 2000s where they started just before they crystallized what how that was going to work on screen and landed on the MCU. But yeah, I think definitely these films don't don't get they they need deserve more credit because I feel like everyone says that Iron Man is obviously the beginning of the MCU, but I think it really kind of started with these movies. That being said, it, what is your ranking for the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy? Josh, um,
1: I mean, give with the caveat that I saw Spider-Man three not that long ago, maybe like a, a year or so ago, or a, maybe a, time is very confusing these days. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah, like so. two or three years ago, not as recently when we recorded that episode of Austin awesome Movie Year. And uh, one and two, I just watched this week for this podcast. I would rank them at two, one, three, which I think is probably the most common way to rank them.
0: I think so, I, and it, and that I mean honestly, that's that would be my ranking as well. I, even though I I come to appreciate three more over time, it's it still pales in comparison to what what one does as a template setter and what this does to build upon it. So, hundred percent agree with you there. I think definitely, if people haven't seen Spider Man Two recently, I would say go check. All three of these out i don't think they're streaming anywhere because sony's streaming rights are very complicated these days but there's a really nice blu-ray box set go pick that up before dr strange in the multiverse of madness maybe there'll be some cameos from some of these characters who knows nobody knows what the hell's going on with that film uh, I but not, Josh, honestly I really <laughs> I, yeah i i want and i saw something on this I, I think i retweeted something like something about this earlier today that I don't really care about all the cameos. Just you give me Bruce Campbell somewhere in there. That's all. That's all I need. I'm oh, he'll be there. He'll be. There. He'll be there somewhere doing something. Just focus on the characters you have. Let's let's yeah. not go crazy with it.
1: I just hope it's not like Bruce Campbell playing Ash, just because they got to throw something <laughs> familiar in there.
0: Right. <laughs> Bruce Campbell's back as the snooty usher.
1: Uh, something like do, that. Do that. <laughs>
0: Br- Briscoe County Junior.
1: Right? There you
0: go. <laughs> I don't know. Bubba Hotep. Well, he's not Bubba Hotep. That's that's the other character. But you get my get the yeah. gist. But Josh, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Spider Man Two. This was a, this was a, such a fun conversation, and as you know, we're both in agreement. One of the best comic book uh, movies of all time, and I'm glad that we were able to get you on to talk about it. So thanks for uh, thanks for coming to the show. And well, and I promise I will not wait another pandemic to to get you back <laughs> on here. Tell people where they can find you on social media.
1: Uh, you can check me out at joshbellhateseverything.com at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And again, check out Awesome Movie Year at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Josh. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to Josh Bell from Awesome Movie Year for coming on to discuss Spider-Man 2 from 2004. If you like this episode, give us a rating, review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really help us get the word out about the show. And now we're closing in next episode on Spider-Man 3 from 2007, which turned out to be an epic, epic epic-length conversation, nearly Twice the length of this one. Uh, so I'm very excited to hear what people think of that. So next episode, we're going to be talking with Brian Scuttle from the Sonic Cinema Podcast about Spider-Man 3. And then we'll discover what the Lady Wan, Josh Bell, and Brian Scuttle thought collectively was the best Spider-Man movie of the Raimi trilogy. As we welcome Sam Raimi back to Marvel movies with Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Now, I want to hear your thoughts on Spider-Man 2. Do you agree with Josh and I that this is the best, at least live-action Spider-Man movie we've gotten today? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter, at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram, via email, at Robertcrookedtable.com. At for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Again, we'll be back next episode with Spider-Man 3 and tie up this mega-series on Sam Raimi's trilogy. But uh, that's next time, so for now, see you on down the road.